0: This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. Every once in a while, it's good to get an outside perspective. So while we focus on Missouri and Iowa, today's guest makes his home in New Mexico. Jesse Dubell, aside with being one of my really good friends and hunting partners, is the executive director of the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. A state that's never seen tall grass prairie, but has plenty of ecological and landscape challenges of its own. Jesse travels the country talking about conservation and has an affinity for the Midwest, even though he's spent his whole life in the Southwest. Jesse, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me, Brandon. A real pleasure to be on.
0: I thought it would be interesting to bring you on the podcast because... You know, what we're doing in Missouri and Iowa although it's very different from the challenges you have in New Mexico really there aren't too many conservation challenges that aren't interrelated you know when you talk about habitat degradation and water quality issues these are all things that you deal with just maybe with a little bit different species of flora than we're dealing with in Missouri for people that are maybe unaware of New Mexico's landscape, can you talk about the state and its diversity from north to south?
1: Yeah, New Mexico is an extremely diverse state when it comes to the various types of biomes that exist, the different type of ecosystems. In northern New Mexico, you've got Wheeler Peak, for example, that tops out well over thirteen thousand feet elevation, and from my home. In central New Mexico, I could be in Wheeler I could be up at Wheeler Peak in about three and a half hours. If I go three and a half hours from my home south, I'm in a desert landscape, you know, closer to about, you know, two thousand feet, four thousand feet elevation, T shirt weather in the middle of December, desert landscape, cactus, things like that. And we've got everything in between. So in the eastern portion of the state there's a lot of grasslands. I mean that's actually the start of the Great Plains, really. You know, the, the Rocky Mountains, kind of the southern terminus of the Rocky Mountains is the Sandia Peak, which is right in Albuquerque. That's essentially the south end of the Rocky Mountain Range. And so western New Mexico is full of mountainous terrain, desert landscape, all kinds of extreme biodiverse conditions, both in the flora and the fauna, but as you get into eastern New Mexico, it's a lot, of, a lot of plains-type landscapes, prairie-type landscapes, things like that. I don't know that it would necessarily be equivalent to the tall grass prairies that you're used to working with, but you see those grasslands and plains animals like pronghorn, things like that, so uh very diverse state for sure. Now, talk about some of the challenges that you face in your
0: role as the executive director of the New Mexico Wildlife Federation.
1: Well, there's a lot, and it starts with the fact that New Mexico is essentially a a poor state economically, so we we rely heavily on agriculture, but the majority of the money that comes into the state is a result of oil and gas production, which obviously those type of extractive industries can have some pretty devastating impacts on the environment and environmental conditions in certain regions. So if you look at, say, the Permian Basin down in southeast New Mexico, it's all oil and gas fields. The landscape has been drastically altered, degraded, you could say, from that oil and gas industry, resulting in things like the listing of the lesser prairie chicken onto the endangered species list. It's important to understand, though, that these are resources that we need. I mean, right now, Brandon, we're recording here in Delaware. And I got here on an airplane, and I got to the airport in Albuquerque in my Ram Power Wagon, and that <laughs> runs on gas, right? So, like, the oil and gas industry funds the state. It's it's what puts the money in the coffers, but we also have to recognize that there is an impact of that type of extractive industry. And so, at the New Mexico Wildlife Federation, I have to understand that these industries impact wildlife, and the wildlife that I fight every single day to protect and ensure will continue to exist. For future generations. And that makes it challenging for sure. The other thing we have to deal with is the fact that climates are changing and, and the landscape is changing as a result of the changing climate. And there are families that exist in New Mexico making a living in, say, ranching and agriculture, and they're raising cattle out on the, the BLM lands, paying $1.35 per animal unit per month. AUMs, an animal unit per month, is like a cow and a calf. So, dollar thirty-five per animal unit per month to run, run, you know, cattle out on public land is a fairly low rate. But families depend on that in order to essentially create a living, working cattle out on the landscape. And I believe in cattle over condos. You don't want to see cattle ranchers go under, and those lands that they rely on not being properly utilized, and the private lands that ranchers might own end up being subdivided and sold off development and things like that. But because of the climate change, because of the drought conditions that we're seeing, the the number of cattle on the landscape are having a devastating impact on local vegetation. And that's having tremendous impacts on wildlife. Brandon, you were in New Mexico a couple of years ago hunting with me and you saw it. I mean, we were New Mexico is <laughs> a hard place for a free ranging cow to make a living. It, it is. I mean, you and I were scaling like scree slopes on the side of, you know, steep mountains looking for Audad or Barbary sheep, as we call them in New Mexico. And I remember you specifically looking down at a cow patty, as we call them. You know? How
0: in the world did a cow get up there? <laughs>
1: You're like, well, 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 how did it get up there and why did it even want to be up there? Like, I mean, There's nothing here for the cow to eat. Why are they here? And so... You know, cattle grazing, it's a tough business for sure. It's a tough business, and I respect the ranching heritage. I respect the ranching tradition, but these are all part of the multiple-use systems that exist in our public land management strategies in this country. And I guess to answer your question, I know I, I talk in circles here a little bit, but you asked me what are some of the challenges we deal with in the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. We deal with the challenge of managing multiple-use systems on our public lands when it's a very, very delicate balance and extremely difficult to make everybody happy considering everybody's different prioritization of how they feel like those lands should be used. Now I know it's not public lands, but there are private
0: feedlots and definitely some dairies in New Mexico. I know Raceline has operations on a dairy outside of Roswell where we're making renewable natural gas from the manure. Have you had any involvement in the renewables
1: industry? Oh, man, Brandon, th- th- these, every question's so complicated. And I, I feel like I it sounds like I'm dodging the questions we have. You are pretty political. We have a tremendous amount of involvement, but it's, it's so difficult because going back to the oil and gas extraction stuff, you know, we, we want to transition towards more renewable energy sources. But when you see entire landscapes affected by wind farms, and the viewscape is disrupted, that's not ideal either. And you look at the, the effects of those wind farms. I mean, they're not, they're, they're not uh, on the landscape without effect, right? Those, the existence of those giant windmills, and I don't know if anybody's ever been on the interstate next to a semi-truck hauling one blade from those windmills. I mean, it's, those things are humongous, and they have a tremendous impact. Same thing with the solar fields. You go to southwest New Mexico, we have areas that I used to quail hunt, Brandon, a humongous landscape that's now nothing but solar panels and nothing can live there. Right. Like it's completely disrupted. So we're involved in the renewable energy space and, and not so much in the methane harvesting and stuff that you've necessarily worked on. We haven't spent a lot of time in that stuff. But the best way I can describe it is is a balancing act. You know, we have to do the best we can to balance all of the positives and the negatives of all of the different strategies that we could employ to ensure that humans and animals can coexist on the landscape and kind of the most harmonious way possible, which is, which is tough. Yeah. The windmills are a tough one because, you know, the, the renewable energy aspect of it is good,
0: but man, I don't like looking at those and I don't know too many people that do, which is one reason why, I am such a fan of what we're trying to accomplish with the Horizon 2 initiative. To be able to grow grass and add it to manure, which is essentially just recycled grass to begin with, and then to use the anaerobic digestion process to capture the methane and then upgrade that to a renewable energy source that can not only power homes and power you know anywhere that you need heat or energy, But they also power transportation vehicles. So when we're using our renewable natural gas that's derived from the biomass, you know, we're displacing diesel, we're displacing fossil fuels. So there's so many positive environmental aspects to it. It's a big win for agriculture, which matters a lot. It's a big win for habitat, for wildlife. So it really it goes back to the to the Venn that Rudy Raceline designed, you know, almost getting close to twenty years ago, that is energy, ecosystems, and wildlife all living and operating harmoniously.
1: No, I, I think I think you're spot on, Brandon. I mean, it, it's unbelievable the work that you all are doing, and I think that technology is exceptional. I also see some opportunities when it comes to to transmission and not just the transmission of electricity when we're dealing with solar fields and we're dealing with wind energy and things like that but also with the production of this gas right we've got to get the gas to where it can be utilized and i you know i don't know enough about your industry to comment intelligently on how we get it there but it's my understanding that currently that gas is kind of put in trucks and then hauled to where it needs to be used opposed to being trans- transmitted through some type of a, of a pipeline or transported in a pipeline to get from where it's generated to where it's actually used. And maybe you could speak more about how, how, how that works. Well, you're partially right and you're partially wrong, which
0: is typically how these conversations go. So there's, there are trucks in locations where we don't have interconnects to go directly into the natural gas grid. We have a multi-trillion dollar natural gas pipeline grid. Most people have no idea what goes on under the ground and under the water. You know, Bill Cooksey was a guest on the podcast, and he works down in the Delta. I'm sure he's seen the schematics of the oil and gas pipelines that are under the Gulf of Mexico. I've joked many times, it looks like some somebody tried to draw a plate of spaghetti, and that grid that infrastructure is already in place to accept renewable natural gas so in, in on our projects let's just use north missouri where it started we have interconnects on on most of those now and what that means is the gas is created on site and injected directly into the natural gas grid so the renewable natural gas that we're creating is mixed with just good old fashioned natural gas coming from the ground. We're often credited for the low carbon fuel standard of California. And people are like, well, how do you get your gas from North Missouri all the way out to California? Well, we don't. So they're crediting it for the off offset of fossil fuels, but it's being used in Missouri. So it it essentially is displacing fracked or otherwise extracted natural gas that would be in that same pipeline grid because it's all connected eventually you know that whole that whole infrastructure system is ultimately connected so the way that we are valued the way that the gas is is valued through the LCFS the low carbon fuel standard is essentially how much carbon are you using to make your gas and or and to make your gas usable so if we were to put it in trucks that are powered by diesel that lowers your carbon intensity score. So any any fossil-based energy that you're using to create renewable energy, then that lowers your your carbon intensity score. It just makes sense. And these are the kind of things that most people glaze right over when you start talking about renewables. You You start talking about those windmills. Well, like how much carbon was used to not only build those windmills, but transport those windmills set up those windmills, and, and continue to maintain those windmills. It's quite a bit. Same with solar panels, when you consider how they're constructed and how they're moved and how they're assembled. What's so beautiful about our system is the grass grows naturally out of the ground. It's then harvested. We're using some diesel, likely, in tractors to harvest the grasses and then move the grasses to the digester. But then that's really it. Then nature takes over. With the manure, there's far less movement of the manure. On the swine farms, you know, a hog will defecate. It'll go through the grates in the floor. It's scraped into a pit. And from that point on it's just nature. A little bit of electricity will be used to power compressors that moves the gas to the purification skid and through that process. But then it goes into the grid and almost no carbon is used in that, which is why it's so valuable and and why it's such a great source of renewable energy. The manure, again, is essentially just recycled grass. You're feeding grain and grasses to the cattle and to the the swine. So we can add the prairie and we can add the cover crops to that and, and still create a renewable natural gas source.
1: Man, that's so brilliant. And and I appreciate the education on that because like most people, I don't fully understand it. You know, I understand about 1% of kind of what's involved and how it works and, and those kinds of things. I understand maybe the concept of it, but hearing this explanation is super, super valuable for me. And I, I'm just thrilled with it. I mean, that that's the kind of innovation that it's going to take for us to ensure that we're making decisions and creating a situation where our future generations are going to have an inhabitable planet, quite frankly, Brandon, because things are changing drastically, man. The world's changing at a rapid pace, and we've got nearly 8 billion people on this planet right now, and that number's growing. And through innovative, effective, efficient systems like you're talking about, that's the only way that I I think that we we can maintain a livable planet. So I I, I commend you and and all the people you work with for for doing the kind of work you're doing in this space. We
0: do our best not to talk a lot of politics on this podcast, but I will say it's disappointing that no matter what one party does, the other party looks for ways to condemn it as opposed to building it up. And these Climate Smart Commodities grants – although they are getting frowned upon by one side because they came out of this current administration, they really benefit rural America. They really benefit agriculture. And I would like people, instead of, if if you're wondering what it's all about, look it up. Look up these projects, these Climate Smart Commodities grants. Look up who's involved, cattle growers, soybean growers, corn growers, Ducks Unlimited, all kinds of different conservation organizations. Our own grant has 14 different partners. All of them are involved in agriculture or conservation in some way. So I think people would just be blown away by some of the inventive and forward-thinking methods of producing agriculture in a more climate-friendly way. That are, that are being tested now or, or implemented now through this Climate Smart Initiative.
1: Well, you know, I, I can't agree with you more on the frustration regarding everything in this world somehow, or not, maybe not in the world, but in this country becoming so partisan. And, and that's what's really frustrating to me as Executive Director of the New Mexico Wildlife Federation because, you know, I, I grew up in a hunting and angling family, Brandon. My dad, my earliest memories were, were hunting with my dad when I was six years old. But in the 90s, it seems like I can recall hunters having a very adversarial relationship with environmentalists. Like, you know, we were the hunters and they were the bunny huggers, or we were the hunters and they were the tree huggers. And there was just this really abrasive, you know, kind of um, environment that existed between those who cared about the environment and those who cared about hunting. And early on when i became executive director of the New mexico wildlife federation it was my goal to make every hunter an environmentalist because if we don't have a healthy environment then you're not going to have healthy wildlife populations and if you don't have healthy wildlife populations you have nothing to hunt you know so hunters need to be environmentalists and and that's that's an interesting concept but it's one that i feel very strongly about and whether we're talking about hunting and wildlife populations, or whether we're talking about energy and energy production, I think to the extent we can get rid of the, the R's and the D's and the reds and the blues and just focus on solutions, focus on what's going to make the world a better place for us and for future generations, I think that's the conversation we need to be having. And, and we've gotta, we've got to figure out a way to get out of this. Partisan politics mindset. That's that's crucial in my mind. The hardest one for me
0: to accept is the divide I often see between agriculture and conservation, because in this role we're doing everything we can to eliminate that divide, and I'm seeing it. It's it's wonderful. It's heartwarming. It's exciting, but that doesn't mean that that divide still doesn't occur in other places and in other ways. I've never met anybody. As a collective group that loves the land more than our farmers, especially, you know, where I live in in North Missouri, Iowa, farming is life and that is our way of life. I continuously like to brag that I live in a county so rural it doesn't have a stoplight. The most likely reason that you'll be stuck in traffic is because a combines rolling down a curvy highway. And I never get upset about that. I can live with it. It isn't nobody's honking their horns. Everybody's just letting it roll on. And man, when when we get agriculture and conservation on the same page and moving towards cleaner water and healthier soil, purer air, that's what really gets me excited. And that's what's happening with this grant with the Horizon Two initiative, along with so many other Climate Smart Commodities grants that we're seeing uh, take root right now.
1: Well, I appreciate the work you're doing, Brent. I can't I can't emphasize that enough, man. You're you're doing unbelievable work and making great progress and uniting people, and, and that's the big deal. Because you know, even as executive director of the New Mexico Wildlife Federation, I have plenty of battles against the agricultural industries in New Mexico because of various things like the way that big game hunting tags are allocated and private landowners get to sell tags that, you know, for for wildlife that's having an effect on their crops and that reduces the amount of tags available from the public draw and all kinds of controversial issues that can be very divisive, that can create conflict between agriculture and outdoor recreation and, and those kinds of things, environmental stewardship. But when it's all said and done, it's going to take people with different lived and learned experiences working together for the common good because when we look at values whether you're a hunter whether you're a farmer whether you're a cattle rancher whether you're a bird watcher we all share very similar values we all care very much about the same things we all want a better world for our children we all want a healthy planet we all want clean air we all want clean water these are things that fundamentally are important to all of us and the work you're doing Brandon is is helping to unite all of these different user groups and everybody with with you know, varying priorities, coming together to accomplish a common goal. And I I just really, you know, it's it's an honor to know you. It's an honor to to witness the work that you're doing and and to be able to observe it and learn about it and appreciate the education you provide every time we have a conversation. You know, you're you're doing great work, man. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, that's very kind of you, very humbling. And uh, I know that you will endear yourself to our North Missouri Farmers when you show up in a few weeks with your bow and you take a couple of them corn eaters out for (laughs) them.
1: Well, I could, I, uh, I hope I could be so fortunate, man, because, uh, my freezer, my freezer has some extra room in it and I'd love to, love to put some whitetail in
0: there. I think once you get, uh, some agriculture country, whitetail venison in your freezer, you're going to have a hard time turning back. (laughs)
1: That's awesome, Brandon. Well, thanks for everything, brother. All right. We'll see you soon, Jesse. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Prairie Prophets podcast with host Brandon Butler.